0: Welcome back to Formate Arbitration. And today, man, I've got a special treat. I wasn't going to do one today because we had Union Day at the Tennessee Titans football game. And so we got in pretty late, but I had somebody reach out that is a very special guest, been on before, <laughs> Mr. Mike Cariff. <laughs> so he's going to come on here and he's going to talk about contract negotiations. And that's something that a lot of people we don't get into uh, we don't hear a lot about and so it should be very entertaining and insightful. So I appreciate him wanting to come on and talk to y'all that way we can have an episode this week. Next week, I'm going to do kind of my state of the our union address. Uh, and it might get a little salty, but I'm going to do my state of our union address next Sunday, Kind of say you know what I want or what I'm looking for from new leadership. As all the way down to the the station level, and so that, that'll be very interesting, and so after that, JB's going to come on. He's going to do one about quarterly overtime. A lot of people have reached out to me. Uh, like I said, he has a very good formula with that that he uh, does his quarterly overtimes with. He's very successful with that. Uh, I didn't want him to do it outside of my article eight series, but so many people have asked about it. I'm just going to let him do that quarterly overtime, uh, grievance with his formula that he uses. And that should be very good. Also, Mr. John Poskin, he's going to come in after that. And he's going to talk about transfers, which is another hot topic. I see that a lot on social media. And, uh, so he's going to come on and do that. And that should be very insightful and helpful as well. All right. So I'm doing this on Discord with Mr. Cariff. I'm hoping I'm not screwing this up. So I think I remembered how I was supposed to do this. We're going to see. I'm hoping I'm not wasting Mr. Cariff's time. But uh, I think I've got it right. But anyway, without further ado, man, let me get out of the way and let Mr. Cariff on location in Chicago... Let him come on here, and he's going to talk to y'all about uh, contract negotiations. I think y'all are going to be uh, be pretty excited about that. He's going to do going to do some talk about some things that that y'all normally don't get into, and so I think it'll be good for you. So, Mister Cariff, are you still on there?
1: I'm here. Can you hear me now?
0: I got you, brother. I got you. I hope <laughs> hope they got you too. But man, it's all yours. Whatever you want to talk about, man, the floor is yours, and uh, I'll see y'all on the other side of it. All right.
1: All right, brother. Thank you.
0: Uh-huh.
1: All right, you guys. So um, I did ask Corey if, if I can come on, and he's always been uh, gracious. Or he you know, he usually encourages me to get on here to talk about different topics. This one is a little, little different than what we normally talk about. I mean, we spend most of our time on, on this uh, podcast and just in general as a union enforcing the terms of the collective bargaining unit. That's what the grievance process is all about. That's what, you know, that's what we do training for the stewards and and all of the branch officers and you know the everything that we bargain for that we're we're getting, everything that we possibly can out of the contract. But uh from time to time when there's a new contract, we get into actually negotiating the terms either directly with the postal service if we can come to terms or if we cannot come to terms, then we go in front of a neutral arbitrator, which is actually a tri-party with three people, a tri-party arbitration panel, where you have a arbitrator that is from the NELC. Uh, we usually use one of our attorneys, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and then you have an arbitrator from the Postal Service. Same thing. They usually use one of their attorneys, but it doesn't have to be that way. And then you have a neutral arbitrator that is selected by both sides and if it comes to it the neutral arbitrator would write a arbitration award which is like a two to one decision you know they'll, they'll pick one side or the other and, and come, you know render a, a new contract uh, lay out, laying out the terms that the neutral arbitrator says are the, are the terms of the contract so there's a lot that goes into this thing um, <clears throat> what I'm not going to do and, uh, and brother Renfro first of all congratulations to him uh, and the rest of the team, I'm a member of, of the uh, Renfro-Barner team. Uh, we were successful in the last rounds of of, of uh, contract of elections. And uh, thank you guys for your support. We really do appreciate that. Um, and, and Brian Renfro will be sworn in as our, our next president in, in uh, December the 17th at the installation in Washington, D.C. Really looking forward to working with the brother. And I'll get into a little bit of that in a moment, but, um, obviously the, uh, he was on, uh, he answered all the questions you guys had. I think he did a great job. And uh, a lot of those questions were pertaining to the contract. So I'm not going to, uh, and he alluded to this when he talked, you know, we don't get into negotiating tactics. We don't get into, Hey, here's where we're strong. Here's where we're weak. Here's where, you know, we can gain some ground and here's where they can get us, you know, the postal service or whatever. Uh, it won't be a discussion like that but what it will be going over some very key issues and where some of the current language or or, or the current terms that we have fall short and where we what direction we can go in to improve upon that uh, so that's what this round this uh, this episode will be about I uh, probably won't take as long as you know <laughs> Corey he did good last last week. He kept it uh kept it around an hour, I think, a little bit more. It doesn't bother me. I know a lot of you listen to the podcast out there on the route. Um, you know, I listen to it when I'm in the car. I hear it every week. Uh, if it's if it's an hour, two hours, or three hours, it doesn't make me much of a difference. But um, I understand some people say, "Hey, you know, try to consolidate it." But uh, I think that just pisses Corey off more, and <laughs> and then it's. His true passion comes out, so that's okay, too. Um, So this episode about the 2023 contract, I've been involved in the last two rounds of contract negotiations. As a member of the NELC's Executive Council, I was elected as a national business agent um, to the uh, NELC in December of 2014. And uh, the first round of negotiations – uh, yeah, I was part of that. I was actually on, the. Uh, we have like little subcommittees and stuff. I was on one of the subcommittees, which at that time, Brian Renfro was the director of city delivery. And I was on the city delivery uh, subcommittee. And then the last one, I was on a, a different committee as well. You know, part of, of the contract uh, talks. But this time I uh, I want to take a more active role. I want to be involved a little bit more. So what happened was, When uh, President Rolando let uh, me know and everyone know that he was considering retiring, not running for another term, um, I actually told him and I told a few people, um, I'm thinking about running for president of the NELC. Uh, It was uh, kind of something that I was, um, you know, not wanting to do because of the the title or the position, but it was something I was interested in because I, I wanted to be able to help uh, make change and do things differently within our union key among those things is our approach to collective bargaining um but what happened was i had a conversation with brian renfro he indicated to me that he was interested in running for president uh we had a long talk uh he told me "What? what is this a damn job interview i said well yeah <laughs> maybe it is i mean you know we we want to be able to trust and understand what your agenda is and we want to we want I want to be able to support you kind of, um, you know, with all my heart. So we had a nice long talk, a couple of them, actually. And I said, look, man, as long as I can be involved a little bit outside of my region in the in the NLC as a whole, uh, I'll be happy to be a part of your team. I would love to be part of your team. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to working with you and, and, and all that good stuff, help you to get elected and, and that kind of thing. And I said, the main thing I really want to be involved in is the 2023 uh, contract negotiations. And he said, look, brother, whatever role you want to play uh, to the extent that you want to as a, a, one of the business agents, as a member of the executive council, I, I would love to have you. So I look forward to that. We, uh, the contract expires in May of next year, May 20th. We will officially start negotiations with the Postal Service three months prior to that, 90 days prior Uh, So right around February 20th of uh, 2023. And today I'm going to go over some of the things that that is going to be on the table. Uh, Like I said, I won't get into any negotiating tactics and I won't. uh, I'm not setting the agenda for the NELC because that's what our national president does. And um, and I'm just kind of a role player here. But I think it's valuable and useful for all of us as members of the union to be focused on. Um, you know, what's good and what's bad about our contract and understanding that because at the end of the day, we have to come back with a contract that the members are going to support and the members are going to feel good about. Uh, The interesting thing happened last contract, in in my opinion, Uh, the last contract expired in November of 2019. Uh, We ended up in negotiations with the Postal Service. We had begun interest arbitration already. Uh, We were halfway or more you know through that process it was taking place via zoom which was a kind of a new thing but uh, we had our neutral arbitrator, his name was nolan and uh, we everything was set up we were going to go forward and uh, we were able to within that have some ongoing talks and uh, president Orlando got a settlement which uh, was eventually ratified uh, by 94 percent of the members uh, that were voting so that would tell you that we were we thought we had a great contract and the, the main thing that we got out of the last round of contract negotiations was that automatically CCAs after 2 years were automatically converted to a career status part-time flexible sub and that was a huge win uh, because there was no before that there was no defined time frame we had people that were CCAs for for who knows how long you know 3 years 5 years whatever uh, the automatic conversion after 2 years uh, seemed like a really a big win. In hindsight, I will say this: in hindsight, um, it, it hasn't turned out to be a great contract. It was not for, you know, not for lack of effort. Like I say, hindsight, is 2020. We didn't know at the time, but currently, right now, uh, the employer, the United States Postal Service, is hiring directly to career and all career model, which is like, you know, 200 plus installations around the country, I know it's not everywhere, but the post office is voluntarily paying us more and giving us more benefits outside of the terms of the collective bargain agreement. So that tells you something about, you know, the strength of the contract. It's not, you know, not for lack of trying and, and anything like that, but uh, that's a reality. That's a fact. The uh, Postal Service, the employer uh, of its own volition is adding installations where they have to pay people more uh, when they hire them. And, of course, on their end, they're doing it because otherwise they can't meet the universal service mandate. They can't meet their legally legal binding mandate to deliver all of the nation's mail six days a week plus packages uh, seven days a week. They can't do that uh, when they're hiring CCA. They're not getting enough applicants. They can't retain them. Um, so we're really in a good position going into the 2023 contract talks and we're 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 certain to make uh, make some improvements upon upon the current contract and we'll see how it goes okay so let's talk about Let's talk about the um, Postal Reorganization Act of 1970. So if we were to have to go to interest arbitration, the language out of the Postal Reorganization Act, which is the law of the land uh, that formed the United States Postal Service, that is the language that would govern those proceedings, those arbitration proceedings. You look at Chapter 1, Postal Policy and Definitions. Okay, I'm going to read it to you. It's not that long, but it's very relevant language. Uh, Under 1C, Chapter 1, Section C, as an employer, Postal Service shall achieve and maintain compensation for its officers and employees comparable to the rates and type of compensation paid in the private sector of the economy of the United States. It shall place particular emphasis upon opportunities for career advancement of all officers and employees and the achievement of worthwhile and satisfying careers in the service of the United States. So there's two main things there. One, comparability to what is paid in the private sector of the economy of the United States. And two, opportunity for a career and worthwhile and satisfying uh, career in the service of the United States. Now, Uh, What is happening now, if you look at the comparability, if you compare our wages and benefits to uh, UPS workers, United Parcel Service represented by the Teamsters, um, and you got to look at everything, it's like a kind of like a health plan, you know, you have all these different factors that go into it, Uh, what is your wage, how long does it take you to get to the top step, how easy it is to get into that wage scale uh what are some of the other benefits etc etc but if you look at on a whole i think ups workers are doing better than us uh and uh, i think their contracts coming up this year as well and they may actually improve upon what what they have however on the other side you look at amazon workers uh and we're doing much better than them you know their wages and benefits pale in comparison to to what we're doing so that's the first thing uh, when you look at the, the uh, comparison. But one thing that you, you can look at, is this a contract that provides us with worthwhile and satisfying career in the service of the United States? I will point out a couple of things here that I think uh, indicate that it's not. Uh, one of them is the rate by which career employees, and I'm not, I, we know the retention rate for The non-career workforce is horrendous. We know the postal service is not getting the applicants uh, in the door. You know, we used to be standing, uh, you know, down down the street to get a job with the postal service. My president Mac Julian, we would go to the orientation, and his 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 words was, "Congratulations, you got a job with the postal service." I know you feel like you you won the lottery. You know, uh, it's definitely not like that for the non-career workforce. But we're seeing significant number of career Letter carriers resigning from the job, uh, sometimes because they have something else. Uh, sometimes they're just they're just they're just out of there, you know. Um, there was a guy I seen a post on Facebook. You see this all the time, you uh, know, just people you know, or just anecdotes, or people that post something. Uh, but this guy he posted resigned from the PO yesterday. Twelve years, they quit deserving my attendance on Saturday and twelve hours daily when upper management can't figure out. How to retain people. Good luck, everyone. Still pulling for you. So still pulling for us. <laughs> uh, but it's that's just an example. There's tons of career careers that are quitting the job now. Whereas before, it was a type of job you would get. I mean, hell, I walked in the door in 1994, and, and here I still am. You know, uh, people that came in in the 90s and the 2000s, they they kept the job. It was it was a career. It was a career job. Uh, the second thing, if you look at the number of people coming in from the military. And we just uh, honored our veterans. We had a holiday. Appreciate them for all their service, uh, November 11th. But I can tell you from going to the orientations and the carrier academies and meeting the new employees coming into the Postal Service, there is a drastic reduction in the number of veterans that are applying for the job. Uh, So that'll tell you something about uh, the job that we have and and the value of it. all right, so that's one thing. The other thing that we, that we look at in looking at the, uh, the whole the comparability standard and the achievement of worthwhile and satisfying careers is what the other crafts, the mail handlers union, the rural carriers union, and the American postal workers union, what are they able to negotiate? What kind of contracts do they come up with? And particularly if you go into interest arbitration, Uh, There's something that is a hurdle, I think, for us, and that's called the pattern. And the reason why the pattern is such a hard hurdle to overcome, and the pattern represents the contracts that the other unions, as well as the NELC, have been able to negotiate for our members. And if you look at the pattern over the past maybe 10 years, 15 years, I'm not sure the length of time, but uh, you look at the pattern over the most recent contracts, we get a 1.3%. They get a one point three. We get a, you know, a bump up. They get a bump up, you know, so you can kind of line up all the contracts and they look real similar. And what makes it a very hard argument for us to make in front of a neutral arbitrator is how come those contracts are good enough for the American postal workers union or the mail handlers union. And they're not good enough for the letter carriers. And I'm not saying that that's a fact, I'm saying that's a hurdle that's something we're gonna have to we're gonna have to go go over. you know, we're gonna have to get over. Um, however, the fact remains that, that the Postal service is required to bargain collectively with us. Um, when you have a, a a job that people want, you have a stable workforce, that's good for the institution, uh, that's good for America, that's good for the service that we provide. It allows the postal service to maintain. Their universal service mandate and deliver upon what's required of them by the law. And the current contract does not allow them to do that. Uh, As I spoke on earlier, uh, they had to voluntarily raise the rate of pay by $3 an hour for the people coming in in the installations where they're unable to hire and retain uh, letter carriers. So uh, there has to be some give and take here. And I don't think we're going to be saddled with the contracts that the other unions. Have negotiated for their members. Our situation is unique. Our work is unique. Uh, the physicality of the job is unique uh, versus the other crafts, and we are the face of the postal service. Um, so, we're, we're, I'm just saying that that's a hurdle. I'm not saying that that's uh, something that we can that we can uh, you know overcome. So, um, I know when you go back and you look at the video on the strike of 1970. They went out on strike because they were not making good money and other things. And I always remember the, the one guy, he said, he, after they won the strike, he, he said he had a big smile on his face He goes, now we can collectively bargain. Now we can really collectively bargain. Um, and that's what it's all about. I think that the Postal Service is really going to have to come to the table and really uh, present some things that, that make sense as far as making this job a desirable job making this job that uh, a job that people want to build a career off of that people want to stay at uh, build their lives and their families and, and all that around once again uh, in the way that it used to be uh, and it and it really isn't anymore. So um, the job is, is uh, <laughs> the, the job sucks. I always say this. the, the problem with the job now is uh, the job lacks dignity and the job lacks respect. The respect for the letter carrier is not there. The dignity of the job is not there in the way that it used to be. So uh, all in all, look, this this round of contract negotiations is going to be pivotal. It's going to be, you know, we we should be focused and completely in tune as a union as far as accomplishing a, a good contract and making sure that the Postal Service works with us to accomplish a good contract. And if they're not willing to bargain in good faith, then we have to win a good contract in front of an arbitrator. And that, I will tell you, we have some awesome, awesome people. And Corey's one of them. People that know the arbitration game, know how to present cases, know how to win at arbitration. A lot of them are on the executive council, and I look forward to working with them. I know uh, President Brian Renfro will be relying on them a lot, those that have that arbitration experience, if we end up, uh, in front of a, a neutral arbitrator utilizing that experience and that expertise to make sure that we bring home a win for 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 you guys, for the letter carriers, for our brothers and sisters. So um, let's start talking about the issues. The first one I know everyone wants to talk about is pay. Um, and there's some things that are very relevant about the pay structure and some things that I, I want to tell you guys are not all that relevant, but I'll talk about everything, at least I'll try to. Uh, I will not be able to, on this podcast, cover everything. I'm going to try to cover some of the kind of key topics and things that are of major concern to us. Uh, When we get into contract negotiations, we're much more thorough. We review all of the resolutions from uh, all of of the, the national conventions going back to 1970. What are the resolutions? Were we able to accomplish that for the members? Is it still pending? Is it something we're still looking at? We go article by article. Is there language that needs to be updated, needs to be changed? Is this language working? Does this get us where we need to be? Are we having problems enforcing this for some reason, uh, et cetera, et cetera? But we go, we go through all the articles, and we look at everything. So this is not going to be as comprehensive here on, on the podcast, but um, I will try to get into the to the key issues. So first one being paid, obviously, with, with any contract, and especially with ours. So, I was recently at a uh, retirement of now was it a now was installation uh, installation of uh, president of branch two forty five, but we did present a pin uh, to one of the brothers. He began in nineteen sixty two as a letter carrier. It was his sixty year pin, a member of the NALC, and he got up there and he said, "When I started working, I was making two dollars and twelve cents an hour." So I right away I put that into the uh, you know inflation calculator or whatever. And I don't know if this is exactly precise, but what it spit out was 92 cents. So if the starting pay was equivalent to 2092 in 1962, we know the pay of letter cares was lousy in the 60s. It was so lousy, went on an illegal wildcat strike and put it all on the line uh, in order to, to get a better deal. We know how how bad that deal was, but 2092 is actually more than the starting pay right now. Right now, uh, CCA starting pay is 1892. It'll go up to 1933 starting pay uh, on November the 19th. So then I looked up my starting pay, and we won a lot of good contracts after we went out on strike. Uh, I started May 28th of 1994. My starting pay was $12.38 per hour. Put that into the little inflation calculator and it came out to 24.89 would be the 2022 rate. 24.89, a little bit better. Um, you know, decent. I when I got hired at the post office, I thought that was decent. That was a pretty decent uh starting pay. So, one good thing about the and, and when I when I came into the post office, you know, like most of us, I didn't know how to read the damn pay chart. I didn't even know what all that stuff meant. But one thing about the table one, I guess I'll, I'll get into it here. I planned on kind of covering it a little bit later. But look, brothers and sisters, everybody is now able to pay chart. It doesn't, is. there's no, we can't rewind the clock. We can't go back uh to, to the times when it was very relevant whether you were on the table one or the table two. The one thing we got out of the two table structure that everybody that started bottom of table two to the top of pay in table two ends up at the exact same place as the people that started on the table one pay chart and ended up at the top of the table two pay chart table one pay chart. That that step old pay, which is the highest pay on either pay chart, is exactly the same. Um, But say everyone that is 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 on table two is because everyone that got hired after the DAS award, January tenth of twenty thirteen, is on uh, table two. Everyone who was hired, to January tenth as a career employee, who was hired, say in twenty twelve. Uh took them 12.4 years. Top. I don't even think there was any hiring in 2012. Mostly it was, it was 2011 was the last time when they really hired career employees. And this maybe, maybe doesn't cover 100% of the workforce, but a good 99% uh, or more were hired 2011 or prior. And if you fast forward 12.4 years, when we go into contract negotiations next year in 2023, Everybody that was hired in table one, already at the top of table one, which is the same as the top in table two. So we're all on table two at this point. Can't rewind the clock. We can't go back in time. We can't, you know, fix anything that happened beforehand. Uh, there was good and there was bad about the previous contracts, but uh, generally speaking, we can move on and we can look at the table two pay chart as being the letter carrier pay chart. Like I said, with some very minor exceptions that, that would be in there. But one thing that was good about the table one pay chart to look at that there's three steps, substantial pay increases. The first step, six weeks. The second step took 96 weeks. The third step took 44 weeks, but add those together That's four and a half years. You look at at my pay, for example, I was 1732 for four and a half years. So at the end of 1998, I came in May 28th of 1994. By the end of 1998, I was 70% my top pay. The last steps of the process they, they, you know, you don't get a lot of raises. If you look at the table one pay chart, the raises were front loaded in the beginning. Uh, and what I like to say is, in order for a person, to buy a house. In order for a person to be solidly in the middle class, and everyone's uh, local economy is a little bit different and cost of living and that type of thing. But um, substantially, after four and a half years in the the previous pay structure, after four and a half years as a letter carrier, you were in the middle class, benefits and everything, but specifically with the amount of take-home pay that you were receiving. Now, if you look at the current pay chart, uh, one, you're spending two years as a non-career employee, not even on the pay chart. Then you get on the pay chart, and the table two pay chart, uh, they're not, it's not top heavy at the beginning. It's it's equal. All of the steps are equal. They're all about 90 cents or whatever, uh, A to B, B to C, C to D. Everyone is 46 weeks. It's all a equivalent step going up the chart. And it, if you go four years in that pay chart, you get to step F, uh, step A. F, all the way to P, one-third of your journey there. Four and a half years, another third, get to where would be in the previous pay chart. So that's, now you're talking about nine years, CCA time, talking about 10 years. Can you now, and this is one of the serious problems with the pay structure, that currently exists takes way too long to get to a solid class pay. Now, top pay is excellent, in my opinion. Uh, Maybe not excellent, but top pay is decent. It's good uh, for for us. But starting pay is too low, too long to get to the top of the pay scale or even to a point in the pay scale that we used to get to a lot quicker. In four and a half years, you got to a good point in the pay scale. Now it's taking over ten years to get to the same point in the pay scale. Uh, as in addition to the problem of the low, the low starting pay. So those are two definitely need to address in this contract. Um, and of course, in the in the previous time when it was a well, it was not an all career workforce, but say this. You can look at the 1998 contract. One that expired in 1998. We went to arbitration that year. When we had higher starting pay 98, I said when I started in 94, it was equivalent to almost $25 an hour. So it was a higher starting pay. Uh, there was quicker advancement up the pay scale. Have Right now, four and a half years, you got to a a pretty decent point because of the raises being front-loaded, where you got a significant raise from A to B, another significant raise from B to C, and another one from C to D, and then it kind of leveled off. Higher starting pay, quicker advancement up the pay scale, and uh, career employees, career benefits. amount of career was significantly higher than the amount now. Uh, in, the, in the contract that ended in 1998, we had casuals, uh, which was very few. There was a casuals kind of like summer help or Christmas help. Couldn't work more than 90 days. They were not to be used in lieu of employees, uh, which was the language that was in the contract then. And then you had transitional employees, which were Cover assignments eliminated or they were going to be eliminated I'm sorry uh, because dPS had just came around and due to dps the postal service anticipating anticipated eliminating assignments and the transitional employees were supposed to be hired and then phased out because once the um, you know once you didn't need them anymore because you didn't you didn't have as many full-time assignments because now dps was making it you know, quicker to deliver your route, less routes, etc. cetera. But e- either way, it not only said assignments that were intended to be eliminated, it was maxed out at three and a half percent of the total career workforce. So we were a substantially almost all career workforce, two minor exceptions. We had a higher starting pay, quicker advancement up the pay scale, the career pay and benefits, but yet, at time, we still thought they're underpaid. I went back and looked. In 1999, uh, we had, uh, there was a lot of activity within the NELC contract. We did not come to terms with the Postal Service in 1998 at the time of the expiration of the contract. Uh, so I went back and looked at some of the old postal records. Here is uh, April. Uh, in the front cover of 1999. NELC members demand more. Uh, one of our sisters there with her fist clenched, planning on getting more. Um, then let's look at the June edition 99 of the postal record. Letter carriers work harder, deserve higher pay. Message out on June the 9th. Then you go to the July 1999, postal record it says message to management demand respect. Pictures of us out there picketing uh, toward the middle, bottom of the page. My president at the time was Joe Hunter. I remember we were picketing at Loop Station in Chicago. He's got a bullhorn in his hand. I remember that. Uh, we all went out there and we did the picketing. Of uh, in June of of 1999, demanding higher pay. Then we get into August of 1999, uh, standing up for our case. Carriers give human face to arbitration arguments. And then in September of 99, the Postal Record says that sombrato our president, Vince sombrato assails the Postal Service. Carriers, what we deserve, he tells arbitrators. We had already started the arbitration process. We had these buttons. Letter carriers work harder. Higher pay. Everyone was wearing them bad boys back then. So then, what happened? Nineteen ninety nine. We ended up with the Fleishy arbitration award. Fleishy was the neutral arbitrator. Uh, in postal record, uh, what month is this? October of ninety nine. Letter carriers step up six. History. Historic Arbitration Award recognizes carriers' hard work. And uh, what that basically did was it moved letter carriers uh, within the structure. We were grade five. The carrier technicians, or whatever they were called at that time, T6s, were grade six. Everyone went up to grade six, and then the carrier technicians got uh, additional money. And under notable changes, Page 7 of the October 1999 postal record, I'll read a little passage here. It says, with its three-year duration, the new letter carrier contract breaks a concurrent bargaining timetable to other postal unions, the American Postal Workers Union and the National Postal Mail Handlers, which agreed to two-year deals that expire in November of 2000. Since the first collective bargaining agreements under the Postal Reorganization Act of 1970, the major postal unions have had contracts of matching length. By moving all carriers to grade six, the award separates the pay scales, letter carriers, and clerks. First time city delivery was established in 1863. So that was the first time we were able to separate ourselves on the pay scale from clerks. if you look at the pay scales now um, I, maybe I, I don't probably want to say too much because I'm not an expert on it but um, there is some ground that they've made up pay scale but I believe that the clerk pay does not top out as high as carrier pay uh, tops out at, at this time but I I could be wrong about that but at that time we separated ourselves from uh, the other unions within the postal service. We started uh, bargaining at a different time and we started, uh, we, we, we went up a, a a grade or a step in the, in the pay scale, um, you know, which was, which was very significant. So move on Uh, pay was going up. Uh, The pay was already, like I say, the starting pay and, and the amount of, of advancements they were making in the pay scale was good. We get into the contract of 2006 to 2011, and there were also TEs in the contract shall not exceed 0.5% of the total number of career city carriers. If you want to know the number of allowed uh, CCAs in the current contract, it's a confusing number and there's a couple of different parameters there, uh, but it's almost 100% of the workforce. Significantly higher number uh, of non-career workforce uh, in the city letter care craft than had ever previously existed, and that is, you know, obviously since the DOS Award, and then we've had two other contracts uh, since the DOS Award, and that number has remained and even went up a little bit um, remained a very, very high number as far as a, a percent of, of the workforce. Um, I mentioned that CCAs now will start, well, 1933 an hour, starting in um, in November 19th when the pay rates go up. It will go up to 1933. We still got back to 215 an hour, which was what, uh, PTFs were, were making, um, you know, PTFs and TEs were making in January 10th of, of 2013. That was the starting pay. Although, if you are hired PTF today in the all-career model installations, that pay will go up to 2218 starting on November the 19th. So we finally made our way back, um, although there is one significant difference. And that is that before the PTF pay had a bump up. If you look at uh, the old uh, the pay charts from back then, the the pay was uh, higher for uh, for uh, PTFs. Hourly rate was higher than it was for regular carriers. Um, trying to get this piece of paper. The rate of pay for CCAs hourly rate was higher. And if you look at the current chart that's going to come on uh, effective November 19th, you'll see that there would be normally a difference in pay of almost a dollar an hour. Uh, they got the full time starting rate at 2207 per hour and the part time starting rate at step A. Is 23.05, uh, almost a dollar an hour, 98 cents per hour. However, part time flexibles now that are coming in do not make the holiday pay built into the hourly rate. Uh, 11 holidays per year is a significant amount of money that used to be divided up into the PTF's hourly rate, and they would get it throughout the year which is we don't, we don't get that anymore. CCAs do get somewhat of a holiday, like a six-hour bonus that CCAs get on the six major holidays throughout the year, um, but that pales in comparison to what we used to have, which is that the entire holiday pay was built in to the hourly rate, which was you know 11 holidays times eight hours, which was 88 hours of pay built into the to the pay structure now ccas are getting 36 hours of bonus pay as as the holiday comes and ptfs get nothing they get uh, no holiday pay whatsoever um i skipped over the part about the um upgrade from grade uh, five to grade six uh but i did pull up the postal record after the upgrade happened it showed to be an additional 3.1% average. What it says is uh, upgrade is 3.1%. And then it says uh, asterisk, asterisk, average increases, actual percentage varies according to step. And then if you look at the chart there, the steps, once again, at the beginning of the pay chart, very significant. It was a 5.2%. Raise for the for for step A, it was a five point three percent raise for step B, and it went it, it went down drastically, um, you know to to step C and beyond, and then that's why they said the average was three point one percent. Uh, so it was basically like two percent at all of the steps of the chart, but it was five point two percent and five point three percent at step A and step B. More so, the making the first steps of the pay chart more and more weighted, where the raises were definitely coming at the beginning of the pay scale back then, uh, versus what we have now, and so much that a lot of people will say, "Hey, let's just go back to the table one chart. Table one pay chart shows." that started the part-time flexible rate one uh, effective November 19th would be $31.06. Now, nobody can argue with that. (laughs) That's good pay. Obviously, the Postal Service would solve all their problems as far as having applicants and getting veterans to apply and retaining employees. I don't know if it would solve all their problems, but uh, it would go a long way to solving a lot of the problems. But if you look at. The rate of inflation put in twenty two fifteen was what we were making, you know, in twenty twelve, uh, prior to the DOS award, twenty two fifteen, with the rate of inflation, at least the calculator I put it into, comes up to twenty nine thirty five. Uh, so, if we were to use the starting pay that's in Table One, which, mind you, nobody's getting because nobody starts at Step A in Table One, but that rate of pay would be 3,106, which is even outpacing the rate of, of inflation. So um, that, that is uh, somewhat higher than what we will probably end up with. But it does give a kind of a, a goal or something that, that we can start our, our bargaining position uh, with. Now, the last thing I will go over about the pay chart, I'm going to move on to some other things. If you look at the pay chart, a lot of people will make a, a big deal out about the colas. Uh, the colas, the way the colas used to work, it would be a flat amount. Flat amount would apply to every step of the pay chart, and what that does is that keeps uh, pay close together. A lot of I don't know what the percent is, but there's a huge percent of our raises. That have been based on the cost of living adjustments, not as much based on the contractual increases. The contractual increases are a percent. Every, every uh step gets a certain percent. And the cost of living is traditionally, at least prior to the DOS award, uh, in, in January 10th of 2013, they were flat amounts. Those amounts apply to the entire to the entire pay chart. But you see what happens when that when that happens, the starting pay outpaced inflation because every step of the of the chart not only getting the cost of living allowance but they're also getting the contractual raises so now uh, you don't have that situation anymore because now the cost of living the amount of money but if you look at the percent that is applied the same percent raise i think the last one was like 3.8 percent or something very significant, that percent raise was applied to every single step. The same percent raise is applied to every step. It's just not the same dollar amount applied to every step. I don't know why we still and publish a number. We say uh, the COLA is I saw it like 2,400 and something. The COLA is 2,400. Oh, it's a rated amount. If we would just say, everyone got a 3.8% raise based on cost of living, that would be accurate and that would be equal and fair to everybody. So uh, that's another thing that I don't think we're ever going to go back to. I don't think we're ever going to go back to a situation where the cost of living raise is applied as a monetary amount equal in all steps of the of the pay chart. Uh, that's a beautiful thing. If we can go back to that, that'd be great. But I don't think that Uh, That's something that's practical or something that uh, we could uh, convince the Postal Service or a neutral arbitrator of. But anyway, let's move on to some other topics. Uh, The first one I would like to talk to you guys about. Let me take a break and get some water here. This is where Corey stopped the tape. Poor man, he's got to go back and edit all this shit and go back and (laughs) listen to it again. All right. Now, let's talk about full-time assignments. Maybe that's not uh, the sexy part of the contract, but it's very relevant, full-time assignments that we have. And there's been some changes in the contract recently that have affected us drastically in this area. Uh, the language in Article 7.3a, as it currently reads under employee complements, says the employer will staff at least one full-time regular city letter carrier per one full-time regular city letter carrier route. And in Article 41, plus each carrier technician position. It's a simple language. It says one for one. Assignment one time letter carrier. Now, that itself is somewhat of a compromise. And the reason I say that in and of itself is somewhat of a compromise because if you look at 7 3 B, the employer shall maximize the number of full time employees and minimize the number of time employees who have no fixed work schedules, postal installations. However, thing, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Part-time employees, CCAs are not really considered in the mix. You look at 73C, it says a part-time flexible employee hours within 10 on the same five days each week and the same assignment over a six-month period will demonstrate the need for converting the assignment to a full-time position. Prior to the DOS award, the definition or how we knew how many full time assignments we had was based on the amount of work that was given to city letter carriers. You had a certain amount of work, and, and that would demonstrate the need to have a full time assignment. DOS award came out, it added that language that I read to you guys in 7 a that said we're gonna give one for one, became the, the thing moving forward because. There was no other way to be turned over into a full-time assignment uh, other than there being a vacancy in the full-time assignment. The second problem with the – and it would be more beneficial, obviously, for us, for full-time assignments, we would have – if we continue with any uh, non-career workers uh, in in the letter-carry craft, obviously – uh, that's one way immediately to get them converted into full-time status. But even the part-time flexibles once you have a full-time assignment, uh, full-time work getting turned over, getting converted, whatever you want to call it, is always a, a goal and something that's that's good, even if it's especially true if it's from non-career to career, but it's also true if it's career to career and part-time flexible to to regular status. But um that was too much taken away from us. And and we have to get that back. But the other thing that we have, we don't even have the the one for one. And the reason why the one for one is Article Seven Three A. That by the memo, page one sixty one. And the memo is on filling full time vacancies. And I want to read you a couple of excerpts from that that memo. Uh, it's called the Full Time Regular Opportunities Memo says the parties agree to use the following process to facilitate placement of employees to full-time regular opportunities, which include one dual, full-time regular uh, carriers, city carrier um, city carrier duty assignments referenced in article 73a which I just read to you of the 2019 collective bargaining agreement, and two newly created, Unassigned full time regular incumbent only positions, which increase full time complement and, and are in addition to the duty assignments referenced in 738. The only way we get to number, postal service voluntarily creates those positions. And those positions are created sometimes, not nearly enough, and there's no mandate for them to do so, but those. Uh, positions are created uh, when they have what's known as an ORNA on the rolls but not available. It's totally voluntary by the Postal Service, but there are times when you have someone who is a letter carrier, they're in 204B status for a long period of time, they have a medical issue where they're not carrying the route, they're uh, they're on union leave, they're on military leave, they're on maternity leave, etc., etc., on the rolls but not available, the Postal Service has at times, but uh, not nearly enough, created those unassigned regular or, or regular incumbent only positions, and then those would be filled by by this memo. But the only other way to fill a vacancy is when you have a residual vacancy. Now, the creation the the creation of the of the filling of the full time assignment wait one of those two things to happen. The second thing is totally dependent on the Postal Service and is voluntary on their end. It's not a mandate. The first one is totally dependent on a residual vacancy. The residual vacancy does not occur at the same time that you have, that there's a retirement. The, the most common uh, vacancy occurs through a retirement. Somebody retires at that time, is not immediately filled, at least not Terms of, of this memo. First, it has to go up for bid, bids on it, bids on that route. You go through the whole what they call the bid churn, then you get to a residual vacancy. Once you get to a residual vacancy, then they go to residual vacancy. Time has elapsed. Uh, some places less, some places more. In the bigger installations, it's usually a matter of months that has elapsed. And during all those months, then you have assignments. Um, Get to the residual vacancy. Even then, we have further problems, further delays. The full-time vacancy now going to be filled, PTF or unassigned in the installation under number one. Those opportunities will be filled within 28 days. An additional 28 days after you get to a residual vacancy, there's any PTFs that were on the rolls prior to August 7th of 2017. Not many, but if that's the case, uh, they will also. I don't even know what the time frame is for that because I've never even seen it happen. But uh, they will be put into the vacancy. But usually, it's either number one or number three. Number three is you take a CCA conversion or make a transfer convert a CCA. It's going to be the first day of the third full pay period following when the residual vacancy occurred. If it is a transfer (laughs) the language says that the Postal Service 14 days in the process of considering a transfer. There is no time limit of how long they would have to Uh, actually, you know, consider the, I've seen some of these that go for months. So why did it take six months to to fill the vacancy? Oh, well, we were considering a transfer. As long as they started considering the transfer within 14 days, um, then they're good. That language is not beneficial to us as far as maximizing the number of of full-time assignments. Um, If you look at the amount of work letter carriers are doing out there we're doing the rural carriers work the clerks work give us the supervisors work because they don't do anything useful anyway but all of the work that we're doing what the contract should state take the number of hours that city letter carriers are working divide that by 40 hours the hours a week and that's the number of full-time positions that we should have some type of formula like that would be a much better formula than the language that we have right now as far as as far as full time assignments okay so that's full time assignments the next area of the contract I want to talk about that uh, I think is going to draw a lot of uh, attention in this contract uh, talks and that is mandatory overtime now i would like to say this right off from the, from the beginning And I know the conventional wisdom, I know those of you that have been around forever like me, you know that, hey, we to have mandatory overtime because otherwise the Postal Service will not get, they won't deliver the mail. We have a a mandate, a service mandate to the American public, and sometimes it's going to require mandatory overtime. I think that that is a falsehood. I think that, that it is insane if you look at it from the outside. Now, I'm going to start with the language in Article 3B. And we don't quote Article 3 a lot. You know, it's management's rights. But let's look at the language in Article 3B. It says, and, and the first part is, the employer shall have the exclusive right provisions of disagreement and consistent with applicable laws and regulations. B, to hire, transfer, blah, 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 the postal service. The first part is to hire. The postal service has the exclusive right to hire. Now, you come into work, you're a regular carrier, achieved regular status. You went through being a CCA or being a PTF or whatever it is, and you said, "That's okay. I know I'm I'm going through this, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'm going to become a regular carrier at some point." And you go through that, and you become a regular carrier you have your own assignment you have a, a regular start time you're you're working the same assignment you know 5 days a week uh, plus and you deliver assignment postal service who has the exclusive right staff the operation not staff enough city letter carriers and you're on route 6 you did the whole thing nobody is on route 8 Logically speaking, take take yourself for, forget about what we know in the postal service and the way it's always been. Logically speaking, why the hell is that our responsibility? How does that burden to get Route Eight delivered fall on the city letter carrier? Not when the postal service has the exclusive right to hire. Possibly fall upon us. And I'll go one step further. At the options available, the postal service as the employer. One, there's an overtime desired list. Our regular carers can either desire overtime or not. Those that desire overtime are by definition available for overtime. Medicare paragraph. If there's overtime on my own assignment, I know that I may have to do it. The Postal service, you know, the rule of reason applies. They may not have to, they don't have to use penalty overtime. They can give me that work because it's on my assignment. Auxiliary workforce, I just mentioned the auxiliary workforce is, is upwards of like 20% now. Uh, well, if they were fully staffed, it would be, uh, put it like that, uh, 20% of the workforce. The Postal Service can now, if you look at Memorandum 1968, allowed to pull uh, carriers from other installations. Memo. I don't like the memos because it allows the Postal Service to pick the people, and there's no prohibition, and mandatory overtime in the losing installations. So I, I don't like the memorandum, uh, the way it's written, but the concept is there that the Postal Service can draw from employees in a neighboring town if, you know, if they need to. The Postal Service volunteers, even if someone's not on the ODL. Look. If if they want to volunteer for that work, even the language now in 8.5d says that uh, they can ask for volunteers, Uh, and of course, unlimited access to hire as many people as they need to. So, if you have a postal service, who has the right to utilize ODL carriers available to them to exercise the letter care paragraph and force regular carrier to work overtime on their own assignment, utilize the auxiliary workforce. To the extent possible Utilize carriers from other installations And hire as many people As they need to Why? Why the hell The language remains the same In Article 3B That they have the exclusive right to do all the hiring Why are we responsible For delivering the mail And and being forced to work Beyond our regular schedule Article 8.1 says A regular carrier shall have uh, eight-hour day, eight hours times, five days a week. Shall have is in Article 8-1. I'm not reading it, uh, but I know what it says. Go back and look at it. It says shall in there, shall have that schedule. Uh, I think a reasonable contract would take out mandatory overtime provision that exists now. I think that would make the job much more desirable. I think that would be fairer. And I think that's something that we can achieve. Repeat after me. There's new contract. No. We're going to get it, brothers and sisters. All right. That's all I got on mandatory overtime. All right. Transfers. So (laughs) if you look at. Which for transfers, it's in the contract. Now, Now, transfers doesn't affect everybody. I get that. Uh, But trust me. When somebody wants to transfer, we're a federal workforce. One of the perks, if you want to call it, or one of the advantages of the job is that there's a post office everywhere, and we have people that want to transfer within a metropolitan area. You know, it takes me an hour to get to work. I pass 20 post offices on my way to work. And then you have people that want to transfer. They want to move to, uh, you know, Atlanta or Las Vegas or somewhere in Texas or whatever, you know. They never want to move to Chicago. (laughs) But anyway, so you, you people that, that want to transfer, um, you know, that, that's something that is in the interest of the employer. Uh, it's obviously in the interest of the employee. The reason I say it's in the interest of the employer is because that's something that they can present to their workforce without any additional cost. It doesn't cost them anything. You're not paying anybody any additional pay, you're just letting them move around in between positions. It should be as easy as it is to bid on an assignment. The Postal Service bid, we get it to that assignment Uh, there's no loss on their end uh, but that's something they have to facilitate the only cost on their end is facilitating the process right now the transfer thing is a mess a complete mess Uh, the first thing that is ridiculous is that there's a lock-in period there's always been a lock-in period for transfers either 12 months or 18 months but at some point the lock-in period made some type of sense because that postmaster was hiring you They were hiring you as a career employee, and they wanted to kind of get their money's worth, so before you can transfer and leave that post office, they lock you in for 12 or 18 months. That kind of makes sense, but with the non-career workforce coming in, two years as a CCA, convert to to career status, and now you want to transfer, why would there be a lock-in at that point of an additional 12 months or 18 months? That right there, you know, makes no sense whatsoever. The second thing is mutual exchanges. If two letter carriers want to swap positions, why would the employer get in the way of that in any way, shape, or form, or have any say in how that happens? Currently, there is six ways a mutual exchange. and that is because uh, mutual exchanges, the both of the gaining postmasters, are gauging their employees, potential employee, their potential transfer employee, on their attendance, work, safety record. If one of those three is is a no, and then you have uh, you know both both sides having a say in that, there's six opportunities for them to say no. There is no. I ask you, twenty two, can you go on you reassign and put in for a mutual transfer? Can you access a database? of people that want to transfer from one place to another. Now we have that in the regional offices. You guys can call your regional offices. They have access to the to the transfer list. And we, we do it all the time. We try and match people up. Oh you want to transfer here? Let's see if we can find somebody else that, that wants to transfer there. But there's no official database for the for the transfer list. There's no form you can fill out. Wanna swap with somebody how do you even do it? There's no PS form you fill out. You have to try to contact those postmasters. There's no time frame for them to consider the mutual transfer. There's six reasons for them to deny it. There's all these impediments to a simple employees and no loss whatsoever postal service. The fact that there's even rules on transfers is just weird. If if somebody wants to transfer, look, whatever I have in my record, if I've been disciplined or whatever. If that's in my folder, it comes with me. The employer losing anything by allowing me to transfer from one postal installation to another installation. Uh, Just the fact that they're going to review your work attendance and safety record or that you're able to to apply for a transfer or before you're able to get a transfer, it it just kind of strikes as silly. When you put a bid in for a route, nobody looks at your attendance and safety record. Whoever's got the highest seniority gets it, you know? There should be some way for someone to just transfer uh, it with a process that works without having to go through uh, all of these denials and, and not knowing how to do it, and there being no database or resource for people to transfer. CCA transferring, it says that the it has to be by approval of the gaining and the losing installation. Why the hell should uh, a place hold on to you as a cca if you're going to move as a cca to another installation you're going to begin a new period of relative standing you're taking a hit you're taking the sacrifice you're going to the bottom of the of the cca uh, list there and you can be held up by your your postmaster in, in the losing installation that that makes no sense whatsoever uh people could just quit and go apply for the job anyway which is which is what they what they end up doing a lot of times Ah, uh, the last thing about the transfers is the ratio. The ratio, one in four uh, vacancies will be filled by a transfer, or one in six vacancies will be filled by a transfer. We should know what what that ratio is. So you take a transfer and then you fill it five other five five ways. Uh, you know, with CCAs or PTFS or whatever. Um, we should know what that is, and the reason why we should know what that is is because if you're a CCA get converted it's fair that the employer has the ability to, for example take transfers back to back show is set up they've already fulfilled a ratio so let's say that there's there's five conversions and then they take a transfer you think okay the next opportunity is coming my way uh, no it's not because they may possibly take another transfer and then that'll be part of that second ratio then the next five would have to be conversions after that. But yet and still, your conversion is delayed. The people that are transferring and the people that are converting should know where they stand, who's next, and who's in line, and what is the time frame, and and that kind of thing. So we got a lot of work to do on the transfer rules and the transfer language that's currently in the contract. Next topic, what about schedules? Schedules for the auxiliary workforce a work schedule. CCAs, ETFs, all right? Let me let me uh read this guys and this is from the Chicago Fair Work Week Ordinance, the law in the city of Chicago. If you work at McDonald's, you work at Target, you work at any run of the mill job in Chicago, this is the requirement. I'm going to read to you what the requirement is. Chicago Fair Work Week requires managers to provide employees with work schedules at least 10 days in advance. 10 days in advance. They don't even give us 10 minutes in advance sometimes. If changes are made outside the 10 day window, affected employees are entitled premium payments. So if they change the schedule, they give you a schedule at least 10 days out. If they change the schedule, You're entitled to premiums. Employees also unscheduled shifts without retaliation. You say no, right? But to give you a schedule, this is just a basic kind of framework. The law's been in effect since uh, 2019. It's just fine. Service can do the same. They can tell you what your schedule is in advance. One of the big reasons why people hate this damn job is because you come into the job, you have no idea, even as a regular carrier, uh, when you will get off work. lack of being able to plan uh, appropriately should not result in a stagnation of your, of your life completely, your personal life, your whatever. Uh, regular carriers obviously should have the right to make plans outside of their regular schedule once they've completed their regular tour duty. You shouldn't have to conjure up a doctor's note. So that you can work eight hours, which is your which is your schedule. Um, that 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 should be the the norm if that's what you want. If you desire overtime, you should be able to do that. Uh, if you don't, you should be able to work your eight hours a day, 40 hours in a week. But even the non-auxiliary workforce, even though it's flexible, even though it's gonna change, even though the employer has the right to set the schedule. Next week you're off Tuesday. The other week, you know, you don't have any control over that. We understand that, but at least let you know in advance the days that you're going to be off, and the hours that that you may work. I think there's something we can negotiate there. Uh, Sundays, holidays, there's CCAs, there's people that come in. I go to a lot of orientations. Hey, are you the type of person that wants to work 40 hours? Are you the type of person that wants to work 100 hours? The room is usually split. There's some people, they want to work all the time. Good, let them work the holidays. Let them work the Sundays. They want that work. Be a manner For someone to say, look, I do want to make a career with the Postal Service, but not at the expense of all of my humanity, of all of my livelihood. I think there's a way for us to negotiate some terms and write some language that would be acceptable to employer and employee in, in that situation. We'll see if we can get there. Now, the other thing I want to talk about. Here, well, I want to talk about. Stress that exists on the job. They're throwing up in the parking lot. That's stressed out by the uh, the interaction that takes place every single day between uh, the boss and you, uh, constantly asking us to to do more. We're the only craft out there in the world that I know of. We have someone who is not a member of our craft. Telling us how to do our job and how long it's supposed to take you. If you hire a plumber, plumber comes out to the house and take a look at it. They say, "Hey, I think I'm going to need this. I'm it's going to cost about this much. It's going to take this amount of time. There is not. Trust me. There is not someone looking over this dude's shoulder, looking at the crack in his ass, telling telling the plumber how long it's going to take him and, and what it's going to cost. That shit makes no sense. Uh, so to the extent that we can, let's try to get the board supervisor out of the job of predicting our workload and mandating to us because that is the number one driver of distress in the workplace and we've done a lot of things with the contract uh, all type of memos joint statement on violence and behavior in the workplace the joint statement of expectations we filed grievances on M- m39 115 dignity and respect uh et cetera, et cetera. but just the fact that you have Somebody who's not in our craft that every single day is looking at you and saying, Oh, I think this is how long your job should take, and I think this is what you should do in your job. That right there creates a ton of stress that no memorandum alleviates. The only way to alleviate that stress is by changing the relationship and the letter carrier craft taking control of our work, our our daily lives in the workplace. So however we get there, I don't know. That has to be a goal contract because this has to be a job that people want to take. This has to be a place where people come to work and they enjoy the work, you know, the way it used to be. We used to come in there, turn on the radio, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the workplace now, you, you can smell it. You can feel it. Walking into the workplaces, there is way too much stress uh, in the workplace that is completely unnecessary. You get a lot of carriers, they'll tell you this, right? You've heard this before. I can handle physical aspect of the job. It's a lot. We work hard. You know, being out there on my feet all day, I can handle pounding the pavement, I can handle the public, even though sometimes they're crazy or whatever. I can handle the duties of my job, but I cannot handle all the bullshit that comes with it, right? That's what you hear from so many of our brothers and sisters. And and I don't think it has to be that way. So there's already some ideas I'm aware of. And there's some things that we've been uh, talking about internally and some things that we've been talking about with the Postal Service on how to make this a job where the letter carrier craft can have control. We can bring back the dignity of the job, the respect for our craft, um, and not be belittled every single day by someone who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, telling us how long uh, the route's going to take and how, how we should do it. Now, the new employees coming into the craft, I believe there should be some type of way uh, to form um, uh, not a pass-fail necessarily, but to make sure that the new employees are learning how to do the job the right way. And you and I know the supervisor's not trying to teach them the right way to do the job. That has to come from us. And we do have OJIs. And there is a checklist, but as soon as we're done with the three days OGI and the Carrier Academy, it's all up to the supervisor at that point. Right now, we have this, uh, quote, probationary period. days for PTFs, 90 working days, 120 calendar days, either or for CCAs. They have this form, get it? form 1750. What a useless form. I think it was written in the 50s or something. Uh, This one I'm looking at says was updated August of 1994. So when I came in the post office, the thing was updated. Um, It's a series of like U's and and what is it? O, S, U, N, O. Um, It goes from A through F. A is your work quantity. B is your work quality. C is your dependability. D is your work relations. F is your work, E is your work methods, and F is your personal conduct. Uh, nobody has any idea what any of that stuff means. Sometimes you get outstanding, sometimes you get satisfactory, sometimes you get unacceptable, and sometimes it's not observed. But whatever the hell they put in there, it's just completely random. And the people that are evaluating you, the supervisors, have no idea what the hell they're talking about. So there should be some type of real uh, evaluation and process by which. A person coming into the craft gets trained as a professional letter carrier. What we have right now does not work what, whatsoever. Um, so, those are the things I wanted to bring up about the craft and about the stress in the workplace. I think that's a major issue. Um, it's a kind of a non traditional issue, but I think it's an issue that we can tackle. Uh, we do have the new employee. Uh, the NERP, what's the new, new Employee Retention Program. We have the mentoring program that's built into that. These are in certain installations around the country. I think that's a good uh, groundwork to try to build upon uh, in, in having schedules for the new employees, training, mentoring. Uh, but really, at some point, we have to take control of our craft from the supervisors who, quite frankly, do not have the goal of customer service that we have. They don't have a goal of providing the best service to the American public. They just have the goal of get the shit done as quick as you can. They don't care what the hell you do with the mail. And that's unacceptable. That, that's a taint on all of us. Uh, we should have some type of control, just like other craft unions have uh, over their their workforce of the training and the development of the workforce. And let's see what we can do in this next contract. The last issue I want to bring up is contract compliance, um, and that's a major issue out there. So we have this contract, right? Contract is obviously only as good as uh, being able to enforce the terms of the contract. I know people are are tired. Uh, I know I am of uh, of you know of us as a union telling you guys that hey, we're going to file agreements on that. Hey, we're going to file agreements on that. And the post office is just doing absolutely whatever the hell they want, whether it's in line with the contract or not. Uh, I think that's completely unacceptable. There has to be a way to get to a language in the contract where the Postal Service would be accountable to to what the terms of the contract are. It has to be a real contract, meaning that when we agree to these terms, this is what's going to happen. And I'll give you an example. We take it for granted, but you think about it. We negotiate over the pay that we're going to receive. And it's not 100% of the time, but almost all of the time. I'm not talking about the hours that you work, because they're still cheating us out of hours uh, sometimes and playing games with the time cards. But your rate of pay, you don't have to double check to make sure. When I say the CCAs are going to get paid 19.33 an hour, starting on November 19th, because that's what we negotiated. I see you. 100%, but very close to 100% of the people that are CCAs that are looking at their paycheck will see that they were paid $19.33 an hour, right? The post office has hired people in, in their different departments, finance or whatever, to make sure, and do the programs and all that, right? To make sure you get your paycheck, do the math, and figure out if they paid you at the right hourly rate or at the right wage. They've done that for you, and they've made sure that they're doing it correctly. What the hell about the rest of the terms of the contract? Why can't we have an assumption that a distribution of overtime, for example, under Article 8, will be done for the terms of the contract? That one, maybe the terms are too complicated for for the supervisor. I know these ain't the brightest people in the world, right? So maybe the terms are too complex. I don't know. But whatever we negotiate, there should be a reasonable assumption what we negotiate is what's going to happen. Now there's a uh, there's a in a memo contract and it's a it's it's about salary advances. It says that if you've submitted your paperwork or um your old money, let's say you're owed a back pay on a grievance settlement or arbitration award whatever, you're off work, they owe you back pay. If you submit your paperwork, uh, 8038 8039 forms if you submit it 60 days passes you don't get uh you haven't got your money yet the postal service will advance you 70 percent of your money so there's an automatic recourse uh getting what you what you're owed and maybe that's not sufficient and it doesn't really work because we had a lot of people that have asked for that salary advance and they're not getting it but uh, if that was a real, if if we were getting that, that would be a way to solve that problem. So you start with a problem. You say, "Hey, people are getting back pay judgments, but they're not receiving their back pay money in a timely manner." And the Postal Service says, "Okay, okay. What we're going to do is, if you haven't gotten your money after sixty days, we're going to go ahead and advance you seventy percent of that money in cash. You can get that right away." So that's that's the Postal Service agreeing that. Contract is not followed, or if something doesn't go the way it should go, there's a way for you to, for you to be made made whole in an immediate sense. What about leave or other payments? What if you have a 3971 that's not input by a supervisor? Is it fair? You have to wait to get that money. That you have to file a grievance and go through the the whole process, you know, because the supervisor either purposely or inadvertently didn't put that that leave in properly. That's not fair to me. Uh, to me, that that's something that could be uh, we could negotiate over language of how you would receive that money on payday. I look at my paycheck. I know it's short. I see that I wasn't paid uh, the leave that I put in for. It It was approved on the official document, the PS Form thirty nine seventy one. Uh, there, there can be a mechanism built in to the contract where I'm going to get paid, and not. Not thereafter. Uh, there's way, there's language that that we can negotiate over uh, to get these things. Of course, the whole uh, broad issue of non-compliance. Post office just refuses something. What is the what is the penalty when that happens? We've we've negotiated settlements in thousands of different installations. Uh, what will happen if you continue to violate this? What will happen if you? Don't provide information to the union. Don't meet on grievances. Violate Article 8. Remove uh, people from their hold-down assignments, uh, uh, you know, improperly. All of that comes with maybe there's a way to negotiate automatic remedy to those things as we've gotten in certain installations, but put that into the national contract to hold the Postal Service accountable for the terms of the contract that we negotiate. hey, let's put our minds together. Let's think about it. Let's think about what language would work and and how how we can get that. Because the status quo where we have a contract with our employer and majority of the time, the majority of the time, on the other side, gives a shit what that language in the contract says. That's not a contract. The contract is only as good as the enforcement or the application of the terms so we have to really take a hard look at that uh in addition you know to obviously everything else there's many 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 other things uh start times are a big issue we don't have no maternity leave in the contract i'm just kind of ad-libbing now i don't want to you know say things and forget other things there's tons of things that uh we we're going to be trying to negotiate over we're going to try to obtain on behalf of uh, our brother and sister letter carriers um, I want to bring everyone in on that process. if you guys have ideas, uh, funnel those things, those thoughts, those ideas, those suggestions, funnel those to your national business agent. All of the national business agents are on the national executive council. They're all involved in uh, contract negotiations. This is going to be a big one. This is going to be one where we're going to have to we're going to have to win a very significant, uh, significantly different and better and improved contract if we want the letter carrier craft to be able to to move on and for us to fulfill our mandate to the American public, which is is in the law, which is the universal service mandate. In order for us to continue to do that, we're going to have to get a better contract in 2023. Um, Thank everyone in advance. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm ready to get to work, and uh, thank Corey for his time and just... Uh, allowing me to get on the podcast and talk about it you can see it's definitely an issue that i'm very passionate about uh but yeah uh let's let's get to work let's do it i'm looking forward to it and um and thank you that's all i got
0: all right my brother so i talk about that love affair for the letter carrier i talk about that shepherd so mike knows that This week I was probably not going to do a podcast because of the Titans game. He messaged me on Friday and says, hey, man, you know, don't go a week without a podcast. I got some things on my heart that I want to talk to the letter carriers about. So my man just spent an hour and a half telling you his heart, uh, things that y'all would not normally know about as far as arbitrations go or national arbitrations that are going to go on shortly. And so uh, that is the shepherd that I'm talking about. As far as Mr. Cariff, when I talk about business agents, that's the heart that I'm talking about that I would love all of our business agents to have. I know that some don't, <laughs> but uh, that's for another day. That's the love affair that I want to see from our leaders, though. That right there. An hour and a half, my man came on here because he said, hey, look, don't just not have one. Let me get on here and talk to the people. He pulled off to the side of the road. He was talking to you on his phone. That's how much he wanted y'all to know what his heart was, uh, what was on his heart. So, my man, I appreciate you, Mike, more than you know. Thank you, my brother, for coming on here and uh, talking to our people. Next week, I'm going to talk about my state of the union address. (laughs) What I feel like our union should look like with new leadership. Uh, Like I said, it's going to be a little salty. I'm going to get out there a little bit. But just over the months that I've been doing this, the things that have come to me through messages, through phone calls, uh, my state of our union address and, and what I would like to see from our new leadership. And uh, so it should be interesting. And then again, uh, JB's going to come in and talk about quarterly overtime, hot topic. And Mr. Possing going to come in and talk about transfers, another hot topic, And then I'm going to start our Article 8 series, which is going to last several episodes. So uh, again, to Mr. Kerr, thank you, my brother, for coming on and talking to our people. And I will talk to y'all next Sunday. All right.